The Window on the World, an international press review by the European Democratic Party, bringing you weekly news and commentaries that matter. Welcome to the second episode of the second season of The Window on the World. Today is Friday, 2nd of September, and in this podcast we will hear the best editorials from around the world on the economic situation in Europe, the fight against climate change, and the energy crisis triggered by the war in Ukraine. Let's start right away with the first series of editorials. Today's first three editorials address the European economy from three different perspectives. The proposal to tax energy companies' profits due to rising fuel prices, the likely economic crisis ahead this winter, and the economic gap between younger and older people. Let's start with the German newspaper Die Welt which compares two opposing views on possible taxation of energy companies' profits. For Carsten Siebel, an additional tax would not make any sense. Why then were e-commerce sites not taxed? They too were accidental profiteers from the crisis during the lockdown. The reporter also points out that heat pump manufacturers and heating system installers with their overflowing order books are rarely mentioned, although they too are gaining from this crisis. In favor of the tax, however, is Lauren Mayer, who explains no smart managerial decisions, no brilliant innovation has guaranteed this outcome. It is political arbitrariness that is moving hundreds of billions of euros. For the German columnist, the tax is necessary only for reasons of social cohesion. According to Mayer, in conclusion, the additional tax does not mean that those at the top do not gain, but rather that those at the bottom lose nothing. Let's move to Southern Europe and to Spain, onto the newspaper El Mundo. Columnist Jorge Bustos takes his cue from French President Macron's statement about the end of the age of plenty, to reflect on what the head of state really meant. Macron knows exactly what is going to happen, and he knows that the average European does not, which is why he issued a warning, Bustos writes. The convergence of several crises, such as the energy inflation along with climate change and the rise of authoritarianism, will mean that for a while many Europeans will be worse off than their parents. Will this lead to the end of capitalism? Not at all, the journalist argues. Unfortunately, Bustos continues, this era of uncertainty and impoverishment will hurt some more than others, as it has in the past. So what is the role of politics? he asks in closing the editorial. The function of politics has never been to guarantee the happiness of all, but to alleviate the misfortunes of the weak with the help of the freedom and knowledge of the strong, the columnist concludes. With the latest editorial on the subject, we cross the channel and go to the British newspaper The Times. Journalist Robert Colwell, speaking about the UK economy, writes that it is undeniable that our economy, and not surprisingly our democracy, is tilted towards the elderly. Indeed, as evidence of this, the average pensioner family has a higher income than the average working family, net of housing costs. It is true that there are retirees who are in the lower income brackets, but despite this, even the least well-off retirees earn, on average, £1,500 more per year than their counterparts who are still working. Even looking at the big picture, the average wealth of those in their 60s is almost nine times that of those in their 30s, Colville notes. On the other hand, when it comes to expenses, housing seems to be one of the issues at the center of this generational divide. 
Today, the average home costs almost nine times the average salary, the worst ratio in 150 years. To close this gap, according to the British columnist, it is necessary to increase productivity, incomes, and reduce energy and housing prices. This, in conclusion, is not only a political imperative, but is increasingly also a moral one. Today's second series of articles addresses another great crisis of our time, climate change. Let's start with the Belgian newspaper Le Soir. For Vincent de Corbeiter, professor of contemporary political and social philosophy at the Université Libre de Bruxelles, the big lesson of the last few months is not that energy prices are skyrocketing and that supply is becoming difficult. It is that climate disasters are getting worse every year and that the most pessimistic predictions are being overtaken by the facts each time. According to the professor, climate change should be the priority of every country. As according to the IPCC, we no longer have even three years ahead of us to achieve this goal. Beyond that, the world will become unlivable. Strong and swift action will therefore be needed, not only on the symbols of the excesses of someone's lifestyle, such as the use of private jets by the super-rich, but also on the economic model of society as a whole. Corbider also draws a parallel between today and 2020. We find ourselves in a similar situation, when the surge of the COVID epidemic forced people to protect themselves with the help of drastic measures. For today as then, it is a higher, general, vital interest that must prevail over the interests of individuals and electoral promises, the editorial concludes. We remain in a French-speaking country, but we are moving back to the center of Europe with the French newspaper L'Opinion. According to Philip Moudry, consumer self-discipline is essential to combat climate change. Save as much energy as you can or expect shortages without warning, was the warning from Prime Minister Elizabeth Bourne at the Mouvement des Entreprises de France meeting, reported here and highlighted in the editorial. The Prime Minister's words for Moudry have the merit of not hiding the reality of the threat and of excluding for the moment the eternal easy solutions. Mudri then goes on to point out, however, that often international regulations on combating global warming not only do not converge or are misapplied, but are full of internal contradictions. For the journalist, there is a need for the world state to align their environmental policies, which are often contradictory even when it comes to regulating their own use of fossil fuels. They are only at the beginning of the journey, concludes the journalist who warns, violent as it is, climate pressure has not yet peaked. Let us now turn to the Mediterranean Sea and move to the Italian newspaper Corriere della Sera. Riccardo Bastiston puts in order some recent events, such as the capture of the Zaborizia nuclear power plant by Russian troops and Chinese President Xi Jinping's decision to break off climate dialogue with the United States as a protest over Nancy Pelosi's visit. These showcase how climate change has become an element of political retaliation. Politics, the environment and climate change are closely linked. Batistan argues, indeed only governments can put in place the necessary measures to counter them, whether industrial, societal or economic. But climate does not wait for politics. Solutions are needed that will pay off in the shortest of terms. For this reason, the replacement of fossil sources can only be based on simple, low-cost technologies that can be scaled up millions of times in the shortest possible time. Only in this way 
the columnist writes in conclusion, can the climate problem be transformed every day more and more into cost-effective solutions by engaging the power of the market? The last editorial of the day deals with the now well-known topic of the energy crisis caused by the Russians' invasion of Ukraine. The first of today's three articles comes from the German newspaper Du Deutsche Zeitung. For journalist Michael Bochmuller, imposing a cap on the price of electricity will do more damage than helping ailing citizens and businesses. But how? A price cap on electricity, writes the columnist, would mean, for example, that many power plants would no longer produce electricity. Due to high gas prices, production costs would exceed revenues, Bochmuller continues. The result would thus be a bottleneck in the electricity market. This does not mean that there is nothing to be done, the reporter reassures. For example, the state could directly help those who cannot afford the coming price hikes. This, again, according to the columnist, could also espouse the cause of fighting climate change by expanding the supply of low-priced, renewable energy accessible to households and businesses. In conclusion, only one thing is forbidden hectic state intervention in the market. In most cases, it does more harm than good. Let's head Southern Europe and to the Italian newspaper La Repubblica. In his editorial, Andrea Bonani analyzes the ideological consequences that the issue of the energy crisis and its possible solution is having and could have on the European Union. Ideologically addressing the energy issue under these circumstances means recognizing that market laws have not worked and have not been sufficient to regulate either prices or the volume of trade, Bonani explains. This is an ideological leap that is difficult to digest, as it implies the failure of market laws that for 70 years have been the undisputed gospel of the EU. Contrary to what was argued in the previous editorial for the Italian journalist, the gas cap is an excellent idea because it makes the union's political weight count against suppliers. It will be necessary, however, for European states to act together if they really want to create a Europe of energy. If we do it, and we must do it, the article concludes, it will be the biggest transfer of sovereignty since the introduction of the euro. The European energy crisis is also being followed closely in the United States. So let us cross the ocean and go to the New York Times. Economist and columnist Paul Krugman looks at the gas crisis both from the point of view of its consequences for consumers and macroeconomic consequences for European states. Russian gas supplies to Europe have plummeted 75% from a year ago, the editorial notes. The Russians claim technical difficulties but no one believes them. This is clearly a de facto embargo, Krugman writes. How will this all play out? Krugman has no doubt that an advanced economy such as Europe's, combined with the supplies accumulated so far, will be able to get by even when receiving very little Russian gas. What is almost inevitable, however, will be rising inflation and a possible economic recession. Whatever happens now, writes Krugman, looking on the more geopolitical aspect of the issue, is that we are getting an exemplary lesson in the dangers of becoming economically dependent on authoritarian regimes. In conclusion, the current situation is reinvigorating those who argue that international trade can, and in some cases, be restricted or handled on the basis of states' national security interests. 
We close in on the second episode of the second season of The Window on the World. We thank you for following us and we look forward to seeing you next Friday, always with the best editorials from Europe and the world. This week's editorial work was by Daniel Rutza and at the microphone, it's me, Gail Rago. That's it for now. Thank you and until next time. <laughs>